0: Today, I'm speaking with Doug Blair, a graduate of the Heritage Foundation's Young Leaders Program, a former educator and contributor to The Daily Signal. Doug, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Always a pleasure to talk to guys like you.
0: Yeah, I I really appreciate you coming on. I think that this will be an interesting conversation. You recently wrote a commentary piece titled Eight College Professors Cancelled by the Left, and I thought it was an important topic to highlight and to kind of repurpose in, in a podcast format why don't you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to write this article and generally what the article is about. We'll have a link available for listeners that want to go ahead and read the whole thing. But yeah, just give us a little overview of the article and your motivation for writing it.
1: Absolutely. So the reason I wrote this piece is because we're seeing in academia right now an exuberance in censorship and cancel culture and this idea that if you stray too far from the left, leftist dogma, you will be punished with these consequences that range from firings to social slander to, unfortunately, in some cases, death. So one of the things that I think is so important for people to know about this topic of cancel culture, specifically in academia, is it's not just a matter of, you know, you're getting just desserts. You're getting punished for your, app, your, your behavior. It's they don't like what you're saying, and therefore they're going to silence you. Because in academia... The entire point is to come to differing conclusions and to put those conclusions together and then find a better solution, right? The whole system falls apart if only one side of the aisle politically is allowed to speak or express itself. And that's increasingly what we're seeing on college campuses. So the reason I wrote this piece is really to highlight this issue that's kind of infecting academia right now of leftist dogma taking over for actual academia as opposed to
0: rational, reasonable debate. And so before we get into the article itself, Um, I want to hone in on the language you're using, just because I want to make sure that the listeners know what you're talking about and that we have a good idea of who we're talking about when we refer to all this. Why do you choose, um, when you say the left or leftist ideologies, why do you choose that frame as opposed to, say, Democrats or liberals or, you know, some other term that is used to group these people politically? Um, You know, you mentioned the political divide and that it's basically one side's language or views that is allowed in academia. Um, So what do you mean by the left? Like who is the left and why is that different from these other, I guess, groups or labels that we use?
1: Absolutely, and that's a great question because a lot of people do use those terms interchangeably and I think it kind of muddles the message. So the reason I use the left is because the leftist ideology literally bases itself off of this idea of purity. You cannot in any way, shape, or form deviate from leftist ideology. Now, we see Democrats who don't actually subscribe to this belief. Obviously, politically right now, we have Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema who are bucking their party on more leftist ideology topics. So I would call them Democrats, but I wouldn't call them leftists. In the same vein, liberal has a, very, has a very specific meaning to me at least, and I think we're, we're going to try and reclaim that narrative where a classical liberal would be somebody who believed that free speech was important. A classical liberal might have views on the, the size of government, might have views on the size of you know, the influence of, of tax policy, how much you pay in taxes. But they don't have these views of censorship and, you know, domination by a thousand cuts of, of censorship, right? So the left is very specifically an ideology that bases itself on censorship, on stifling dissent, on forcing people to, to accept their ideology as the only ideology, which I don't believe those other two have. And so when we muddle that message, it really makes it difficult for us to target the actual problem. We don't say we're against Democrats. We don't say we're against liberals. We say we're against the left because that's the real target. It's
0: not those other two things. So now let's, let's get into some of these examples then. You know, you bring up eight in the article. There are clearly more than that. But honestly, even from my own perspective, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with several of these cases too. Why don't you tell us a bit about some of these cases that you wrote about?
1: Absolutely. So I think that's, again, the other reason why this article was so important is because there are so many of these stories that people just don't know about. I feel like in America today, there is a general sense that something is wrong at college campuses and on college universities where free speech is under attack, but it's very difficult to quantify that into, well, this specific circumstance is so egregious that nothing needs to be done. So I led the piece off with the story of Mike Adams. Mike Adams was a criminology professor who worked at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington and, and Mike Adams was a very conservative man. He was, he was very plainly conservative. I know a lot of professors on college campuses will say, oh, you know, I'm just going to toe the line so that people don't call me out for it. I just want to keep my job. But Adams wasn't like that. He was very strongly and outspokenly conservative. In June of 2020, he was the subject of two petitions on change.org that were directed by criminology professors and graduate students from across the country, not even just the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, but college professors from across the country. And this was an open letter that was attempting to get him fired from his job for what they perceived as... Hate speech. So, I mean, Adams was a provocateur. There was no way around that, that he definitely said things that, you know, stoked the fires. But, you know, he would say things like, don't shut down universities, shut down non essential majors like women's studies. Another one, he would say, you know, let's make it illegal to mutilate the genitals of the mentally ill, referring to transgenderism, right? So, again, it's not the most polite thing, but it is free speech. He's allowed to say these things. What ends up happening is, The school reaches a settlement with Adams to basically get him out of the job, right? They say, we're not going to keep you on, but it's going to look bad to just fire you. So we're going to reach a settlement. Um, They agree to pay him out. But what ends up happening is it's not just this petition. It's not just these letters. It's the, the cancel culture campaign behind all of that vitriol that really gets to Adams. And unfortunately... Uh, in July of 2020, he's found dead at his home, and a, a report, an autopsy report basically indicates that he took his own life. And the reporting that came out afterwards indicated that the reason he took his own life was because of this cancel culture campaign. The damage to his reputation, the damage to his, his psyche as a result of this harassment was so egregious that the only way he found he could, he could escape it was, was to take his own life, was to commit suicide. And again, I think that the reason why that's such an important story to lead with is it's not just holding people accountable. You don't get to say to somebody, you know, you're a terrible bigot, horrible person, and I hope you die. And then in the aftermath when they die, say a mission accomplished, which a lot of these people were. Unfortunately, we we saw that there was one of Adams's colleagues at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, a Professor L.J. Randolph Jr who tweeted out after Adams died, he said, quote, please do not mourn, or sorry, please do mourn Mike Adams' death, but don't sugarcoat his rhetoric on merely controversial or racially charged. He was blatantly racist, homophobic, and sexist. His own words left no room for any interpretation of that, which to me is just one of the most despicable things I've ever heard. The man is dead. He can't defend himself. And all of a sudden it's acceptable for them to say, well, you know, he was a bigot anyway, so it's not that big a deal.
0: Yeah, so I want to tangent really quick into something that you brought up, this idea of accountability, Um, Mm -hmm. because you hear that a lot from proponents of what we're calling cancel culture, proponents of censorship, whether it's within academia or outside of academia. You hear a lot about this term accountability, that we're being held accountable for being racist, being sexist, et cetera. How do you think we balance those two? Because I think that free speech obviously is important. And the purpose of this podcast and others is to encourage free speech and encourage the ability to talk about some of these issues freely. But obviously people do still say horrible things. People, There are certain things that people say that are not appropriate for civil society. And sure. so what do you think is the difference between accountability and cancel culture? What do you think is the line at which point it becomes more than just holding someone accountable for wrong or hateful speech, and now it becomes something greater than that?
1: It's an excellent question and one that conservatives and, and right-leaning people really do need to address. So to me, there's two things to it. One, it's the intent. Cancel culture's explicit purpose is punishment. The idea that you are going to cancel somebody is you are going to make them miserable, you're going to make them suffer, to lose their job, to lose their social position, to lose their friends, what have you, Um, in the case of Mike Adams, to lose his life. Cancel culture basically wants you to feel it accountability is where you want somebody to learn or you want somebody to face a reasonable consequence for what they've done, right? So if you are in a conversation with a friend of yours and they say something that you find objectionable or you, they say something that you dislike, your intent isn't to say, I'm going to ruin you. Your intent is to say, hey, that was unacceptable and I I, I really would appreciate if you didn't say that again. And you hopefully the behavior that you get out of that is they'll stop doing it. Whereas, again, like I'm saying, cancel culture is these people don't have jobs anymore. And that's the big difference in intent. The second thing is scale. So cancel culture, by its very nature, that's why we call it cancel culture, means that the person has been canceled. It means that they're no longer acceptable in polite society or their job or whatever. So the scale between what somebody says and the consequence is really important as well. So if somebody says something racist or says something homophobic or sexist or bigoted or what have you, and the response isn't just, please stop saying that, it's, you're done, you're out, you're out of society, then that's cancel culture, right? So we've seen actors who will also have said something in their past, right? Like maybe 12, 15, 20 years ago, will have said something. And the response now is to say, you're done, you're canceled, whatever, So the scale of the response is also what matters as well. Because again, like think about it with your friends. If your friend said something offensive, you would just kind of pull them aside and say, please stop saying that. You wouldn't, again, blast all their information on Twitter and, and kind of let it go from there. So I think the biggest two differences between cancel culture and accountability are intent in terms of what do you want out of this and then scale in terms of response. Is it an appropriate response to what was done, what was said, or what you felt.
0: Yeah, I appreciate the distinction because it is, like you said, it's a question that needs to be asked more. It's something that kind of gets skirted over. And, and a lot of times then it gets manipulated into shoving everything into cancel culture and then it loses credibility. There are differences between the two. What other what other examples have you seen? So in the article that you had, obviously the the one that you started with is a, a stark, I guess reminder that cancel culture can have extremely, extremely horrible consequences. What else had you come across that you think is worth highlighting?
1: I think another story that is worth looking at is the story of Peter Bogosian from, unfortunately, my, my home state, my home city of Portland, Oregon, who used to work with academics like James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose to submit these bogus, sort of ludicrous academic papers to social science journals in an attempt to basically highlight how non-stringent and non kind of like academically rigorous these journals were. So they would submit things like, you know, the the patriarchal standards of dog parks, right? Which is something that, you know, if you look at it past first glance, it's just absolutely ridiculous. They did like a feminized version of Mein Kampf, where they basically replaced the word Jew with man and submitted it to an academic journal. It got, it got accepted. Um, I mean, th- these are the things that it was sort of like a social experiment to demonstrate that these social journals were not being, they weren't doing their jobs. They weren't scanning these papers. They weren't, you know, being academically rigorous, which is what you would expect of a a journal. He was also somebody that was not a conservative, but he believed in free speech. This is where that distinction between a liberal and a leftist is. Bogosian is definitely a liberal. He's not on the right. He believes in uh, larger government. He believes in some of the more left ideas, but he doesn't believe in censorship or uh, kind of domination by leftist dogma. So he would have people come into his classroom that were, you know, flat earthers. He would have people that would come into his classroom that weren't people that you might want to talk to just kind of on a daily basis, but he felt it was important for them to be exposed to this, to debate, to understand where people were coming from, that they, they could make stronger arguments for their own positions, right? So Boghossian was the target of a bunch of harassment. There was uh, graffiti in the shape of a swastika that featured his name. And then there was a surreal Title uh, nine probe that accused Bogosian of beating his wife and children. And of course, after, you know, an investigation, this was found to be total bunk. Uh, but the idea was that there was a, a coordinated campaign by the students at the school to cancel him. Um, in the aftermath of all of this uh, sort of harassment and, and this cancel culture campaign, Bogosian ended up resigning. He basically announced that Portland State University, the school where he worked, had failed in its duty to free thought. And in doing so, it had failed not only its students, but the public that supported it. And I mean, I think that that's sort of one of the most damning things you can hear about a college, that it's failed in its baseline duty to provide a space for free speech, for free thought, for free expression, and is instead basically deciding it wants to censor and it wants to clamp down on dissenting opinions. Like we said at the beginning of this interview, college is a place where you take competing ideas, you put them together and you see which ones make the muster. If you are only able to have one set of ideas that is allowed to propagate, you're not creating a, an academically rigorous environment, you're creating an echo chamber. And an echo chamber really doesn't benefit anybody, right? We see that these ideas promulgate on university campuses and they promulgate on boardrooms, but they don't really resonate very well with the American public because they're very divisive, right? Concepts that sort of find their way out of academia, like critical race theory or you know, equity initiatives that kind of focus, hyper-focus on race, are really unpopular with the American public, but they're really popular on academic uh, or on, on, on university campuses. So what we're seeing is Peter Boghossian kind of demonstrated that the academic rigor behind a lot of these social sciences is not there. The response to the questioning of the academic rigor of these social sciences is really harsh. And, you know, we can't progress as a society if that's the, the, the thought process that we're going to have here.
0: I had done an interview with Dr. Uh, James Enstrom, who was ousted from, well, he was going to be terminated from UCLA. And it wound up being that after they settled, he was deemed retired instead of fired. And so it wound up not being, so to speak, an ousting, but We talked a little bit about some of this stuff at an institutional level, talked about things like his research was not aligned with the academic mission of the department. That was part of their motivation for trying to terminate him. And then we got into a discussion about some other factors like peer review and academia as an institution. And so seeing these issues, um, particularly the example of the social science publications getting through um we see things like the reproducibility crisis where studies are not able to be replicated very well in hard and soft sciences uh, across the board we see these issues and we see this division so what do you foresee for the future of academia with some of these kind of foundational fundamental flaws in what academia is supposed to be and what it, what roles it's serving you know it is supposed to be sort of this battleground of ideas where We can, as a society, then say, this idea turned out to be better. Let's implement it on a society-wide basis. We're still seeing that role in the sense that ideas that are promulgated in academia are now being promulgated throughout society, like you were bringing up. But there's that disconnect. And the disconnect, in order for it to be fixed, these mechanisms that are put in place, like peer review, like publication requirements, and like kind of cultural view of academia as this battleground of different ideas for advancement of society, those things are supposed to intercede there and and make it so that, yes, the ideas promulgated in academia actually should be promulgated in society. So seeing these issues, seeing this division, where do you foresee that we go from here? Do you think that the institution of academia as it is can continue? Can we salvage what it was supposed to be and return to the point where we can have free speech and free thought and these issues we've seen some people have advocated for new institutions i want to say university of austin still came up yet as basically pushback to cancel culture that has started a lot of ideas about maybe we need to rethink academia as an institution so i've been on a tangent a little bit but what what are your thoughts on this stuff what do you see as the future for academia
1: no, I, I, I mean, it's, it's a question that sort of doesn't really have a good answer, right? I mean, it's, it's in a way unclear what the future holds for a lot of these topics. But my hope is that we are seeing a turning point in the sense that Americans as a whole are really tired of this. I mean, like one of the things that Americans kind of have a really good skill for, I worked abroad for a long time and, and sort of saw this difference between Americans and a lot of other people or that Americans have a really good sense of BS, like they can kind of smell it. So I do think that Americans are picking up on the fact that this is BS. So when we look at certain stories, again, I I actually did uh, another highlight of this piece was the the story of Gregory Menko, who had been a non-tenured math professor and volunteer assistant baseball coach at St. Joe's University in Philly. And he had made a series of tweets that were sort of critical of reparations and racial sensitivity training, which again, are not super popular with the American public as a whole. So these were not like out of left field. This was also on an anonymous account. So it was very much a cut and dry case of, I'm not doing this in my capacity as a professor, I'm doing this in capacity as a private citizen. Um, Somehow he was recognized as uh, the professor and it it came up to the administration. What ended up happening is after he was placed on leave and, and not rehired and in a sense fired, the donor base for the school took up arms. They basically said, this is a problem. If you're going to censor and cancel professors based on totally acceptable speech, we're gonna stop donating. And I think that might be the turning point is when we start to see that the donor base or the base that's keeping these colleges and universities alive starts to rebel. And I do think that the fact that Menko was fired for very flimsy reasons, because he basically said something that was socially acceptable, a majority of Americans don't believe that uh, reparations is, is appropriate. I, I firmly believe that if the donor base can get up in arms about that, we might start to see the donor base get up in arms on other things. So I think as a combination that makes me hopeful for a, a future where academia is not quite as radical and not quite as dogmatic towards the left is that we are seeing examples of the donor base kind of taking up a position where you cannot fire people for for free speech or we're going to stop donating. And the fact that Americans as a whole seem to be pushing back on these concepts. Again, reparations for slavery, which is something that's very popular in academia, is not very popular with the American public as a whole. So as the radical left continues to try and push these things from the ivory tower of academia, It becomes more and more frustrating and less and less tenable for the American public to start accepting those things. I don't think through force, which is what the left kind of does in terms of cancel culture, I just don't think that that is a a sustainable position to hold. You can't just cancel everybody, especially when a large amount of the American public is starting to say, well, we're just not going to listen to you anymore.
0: Right. Well, and we're seeing that sort of re-inculcation of free speech and other formats too. Um, You had written previously about Joe Rogan too, and him and other sort of alternative media sources that fall outside of the mainstream media sources that fall outside of, well, even outside of mainstream media platforms, right? The rise of podcasts, the rise of these alternative sources of information that people can now go to that was sort of supposed to be There, with things like Facebook and Twitter, that it was supposed to be this place where you could get your information a little bit from here and a little bit from here and form your own opinions based on it. And then it sort of devolved into echo chambers over time for a variety of reasons. But then we saw the rise of things like Joe Rogan and other more long form discussions, more free speech focused discussions. And so, do you think that that's part of the solution? I mean, culturally speaking, we need to value free speech as a society. So do you think those alternative news sources, the podcasts and people like Joe Rogan are going to push us in that direction?
1: I do. Um, I, again, I, I think it's important to note that academia is just one sector of this broader free expression, free thought, free speech debate. Academia obviously is quite important, but I do think that outside sectors like Joe Rogan, outside sectors like people pushing back against things like the MLB, are important indicators of where the sort of mood of free speech is going. So you mentioned Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is, I think, the perfect example of what academia should be, where it's a discussion between various different ideas. Joe Rogan, to me, sort of represents the ideal uh, debate format because he will have literally anybody on that show. He will have Ben Shapiro, who is obviously very famous on the right. He will have Bernie Sanders, who is very famous on the left. He will talk to all of them. And he'll ask them questions. They'll be like, why do you believe that? Why is that the thing that you've said? You've said this before. What what does that mean? And it's very much an investigation into kind of what makes people tick. And you get to the point where you start to understand their philosophy. Ben Shapiro obviously is a traditional conservative and you get that understanding when you listen to him. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. And when you listen to him talk, you get to an understanding of why Bernie Sanders is a socialist and what socialists believe. So again, I think that academia used to do this really well. And people would go to academia and say things like, okay, well, I have this question, you know, what is, what is this about? And academia would answer. In that void, Joe Rogan and people like Joe Rogan have filled that gap. Corporate media is just another sort of symptom of this, but keeping it on academia, when people desire to find out the truth about a topic they don't understand they, they're gonna go and find it somewhere, right? That, that doesn't work where you can't just completely tamp down on an idea, especially not in America. This isn't like Soviet Russia where you can just you know Stalin somebody out of existence. This is America where you're allowed to express yourself even if that opinion is something you find odious. So academia used to do it. Joe Rogan is doing it now. He proves that there's an audience for that type of content. And my hope is that the sort of evidence that Joe Rogan is the most popular podcaster in the world would indicate to academia that, hey, maybe we had something back in the day when we were actually providers of free speech and free expression.
0: You had some experience working in education. And so I was hoping to ask you about your perspective on these issues in the past and present. Did you see these kinds of things when you worked in education? Did you see these kind, this rhetoric, this division that we're seeing now? Has it gotten worse? Has it always kind of been there and now it's just more prominent? That's another thing with, you know, we were mentioning the media and you'll hear people say, oh, well, the media is all lying to us now. It's like, well, it may very well be that they were lying to you before. And just now with social media and everything else at our fingertips, we're much more easily able to find out that they're lying to you or, or whatever else. And I think that that's generally the case with a lot of issues in the technological age. But that said, I, my experience in education has been in graduate school, in undergraduate, And, you know, teaching to some extent in those capacities. But I'd like to get your perspective and hear what it was like when, well, first off, what your roles in education were, but then what it was like during that time and how it's changed in your perspective now.
1: Absolutely. So I want to approach this from two points of, of sort of attack. The first is my personal experience in education. Uh, when I was an educator, I worked at a lower level of, of age. So my, my youngest child that I, I taught um, was six months old. I was a, a, an assistant sort of teaching them French. So I would talk to the babies in French and I would give them uh, kind of lessons in French, which is about, I mean, as effective as you would expect for a baby, but you, know, you talk to them in French and they start to pick it up. My oldest was 11. So we would have the sort of gamut from the babies to the older child, sort of you know, elementary school aged. What I witnessed was something very odd coming out of their schools and then something with my colleagues at the the facility I was working at, the education facility I was working at. But the facility I was working at, there was something that was kind of strange in the sense of what was considered political and what was considered, quote unquote, human rights. I consider Black Lives Matter, the organization, to be a political organization. I I firmly believe the fact that it, it advocates for a very specific position. It has political roots. It has kind of all of the the bits and pieces that would require it to be a sort of political movement, Um, make it so. So the school or the the facility had a a ban on political slogans. It had, you couldn't wear like a MAGA hat, you couldn't wear a Bernie Sanders shirt, you couldn't wear like, I'm with her, whatever. However, they did allow for Black Lives Matter paraphernalia, so I thought that that was sort of odd that the leftist position of this isn't political, it's human rights sort of indicated to me that this starts really, really young, right? A facility for young children was going to show children that what a leftist position was was just human rights, non-negotiable whatever. It was very similar. We had a transgender member of staff that was non-political either. It was not debatable. Transgenderism is, it is firm ideology done, no debate. So those two things kind of indicated to me that, all right, this is something that the school or the the facility recognizes as leftist ideology is not negotiable. Second thing, when I would talk with my older students, 11 years old, they would come from other schools and then they would come to our facility to sort of do after-school care. I would talk with them and I would ask them what they were learning in their schools. Uh, one instance that really stood out to me was I talked with one of my, my uh, I believe she was 10, and she was doing a project on great Brits, like great British people like you know William Shakespeare, Queen Elizabeth, yada, yada, yada. And I asked her, well, who do you have on your list? And she said, well, I have you know, Queen Elizabeth, I have Queen Victoria, I have William Shakespeare, all the people you would expect. And then I was like, oh, do you have Winston Churchill? On your list, and she goes, "No, I don't like him. He didn't think women were people." And to me, that was just something that was so shocking that this this child clearly hadn't thought of that herself. This was definitely something that a teacher had told her, as fact, that Winston Churchill was a misogynist and therefore was not was not worthy of recognition. I don't know about you, I think the man who kind of single-handedly helped fight the Nazis in England deserves a little bit of recognition as one of the great leaders of World War II. Um, Maybe his politics weren't up to standards for 2022 or 2021, but I still think he's worthwhile. So that was one angle where it was sort of obvious that the school itself was teaching the children only leftist positioning, and that the facility that I worked at was also kind of inculcated with, with leftism. That's point number one. Point number two, when I was in college back in 2012 to 2016, there was a a movement on campuses that was sort of just burgeoning about what was acceptable speech and what was unacceptable speech. I went to a Catholic school in Portland, Oregon, and obviously the, the Catholic position on abortion is pretty clear, right? You know, the, 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 the Catholic Church teaches that abortion is a sin, it's unacceptable, and it's wrong. So the, the students at the school who were Catholic put out crosses at, uh, around the, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade to sort of indicate their beliefs on the topic. The school, with the support of many of the students, was, was livid that this was a thing. People were tearing down the crosses and saying, this is, this is inappropriate and it's unacceptable and it, it offends me. And so that was sort of the, the beginning to me as a student witnessing that kind of on a college campus. And it's only gotten worse from there. I, I mean, I think that like what we look at nowadays is the direct result of this philosophy of, if it offends me, I get to get rid of it. And a lot of people thought that would go away. And unfortunately, it never did, even though I do think that we're seeing signs of positivity in the future.
0: I appreciate you coming on and telling us a little bit about some of these examples. Uh, Like I said, we will link the full article, and I really encourage our listeners to go read the entire article. Like I said, even I didn't know about several of these cases. And so I think that it's worth your time to read through it, to understand what happened in some of these cases, and to be prepared to stand up against it if you see something similar happening, whether it's at your school or whether it's at you know an institution that you work at or what have you, to stand up for free speech. So before we close, I wanted to turn it back over to you and give you one last opportunity to say what needs saying. If there was anything that we missed, anything that we maybe touched on, but missed something or didn't cover it in as much depth as you'd like, or any parting words or final messages on this topic that, that you want to give. So the floor is yours, and thanks again.
1: Of course. No, thank you so much for having me on. Again, you're right. This is such an important topic to talk about. And I think the more we talk about it, the better it gets, the more exposure it gets, and the more people are on board with our, or our ideas of free speech is important, free speech is what matters. The final point that I would make to your listeners is, guys, this is the most important thing that we have. Looking at countries across the world and throughout history, the first right to go and in, in societies that decline is the right to free expression, the right to free speech. If we lose free speech, we're done for. I mean, you, you cannot survive as a country as wide, as diverse, as, as, as kind of magnificent as, as ours without that idea of being able to express your views, even if they're not the most politically acceptable or they're not the most you know socially acceptable. The way that societies thrive is when people are allowed to express how they feel. If we lose free speech, we are done for. So this is a fight that needs to be fought. It's a fight we're winning and it's a fight we need to keep on going because I think in the end, America is going to recognize what makes it great. It's gonna recognize what makes us so unique amongst other countries in the world. And it really is that idea that Americans are able to discuss issues and they're able to talk with each other and they're able to get things done by finding common ground and by finding these ideas that they can share and finding these ideas that work better than ideas that they had before. So keep fighting for free speech. It's going to keep us alive.
0: Well, thank you so much, Doug Blair. Thanks for coming on the podcast and for speaking with us about these topics. Article will be linked in the episode description. So like I've said numerous times now, if you haven't read his article yet, do give the whole thing a read. Thank you again for coming on. This was a great discussion. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Great. Take care. Have you ever noticed that the most important topics are also the hardest to talk about? Whether it's politics, religion, money, or culture, you're more likely to get in an argument than to have a genuine civil conversation. On Say What Needs Saying, we tackle these touchy topics and bring listeners on live to discuss them with us. We're pushing back against cancel culture and censorship and bringing back free speech and civil discourse. Listen to our previous discussions wherever you find your podcasts, on YouTube, or on our website at saywhatneedsaying.com. And join us live for the next one so that you can say what needs saying too.